Lucinha. Essa sua suspeita revela que você ou está envelhecendo muito ou precisa de um bom analista. Eu perdoo a ofensa porque sei que estou em meu juízo perfeito. E continue esperando que ele abra a janela todas as manhãs e... Continue olhando pelo binóculo. Todas as manhãs, há 20 anos, ele abre aquela janela e olha para a janela de Marília. Deus do céu, há 20 anos que eles moram na Itália, Luz. Mas então por que ele não se casou até hoje? Viúvo há 18 anos, por quê? É, eu vou pedir ao doutor Miguel que indique para você um bom analista. E por que não um analista para nós? You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Leonard Vaut. And I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And on this episode, we'll be talking about telenovelas, the cultural power of melodrama. So I remember when you came to Karachi and we were sitting in our TV lounge and my grandparents had a Pakistani drama on on full blast on the TV and you were asking me what was going on in the story. And I told you, you know, it's the same old newlywed couple going through issues. The new bride is having problems with the mother-in-law and there's some sort of class issue in there as well sprinkled in and it was at that point that we realized that actually there were a lot of similarities between what we were watching then and what's also aired on tv in peru yeah i just i found it really fascinating that every time we peeled back another layer of these shows they were just exactly the same <laughs> and as in peru you know these these shows which uh, are called telenovelas in Latin America, are just such a big part of life. And getting aired on a daily basis and people being glued to these really dramatic storylines with really exaggerated and often really, really terrible acting. And what was crazy is that they were so similar, but of course, Pakistan and Peru are a long, long way away from each other. Not just geographic spread, but there obviously isn't that much cultural exchange between the two countries. Yet this... TV narrative style was so important and prevalent and shared so much with each other. And it really was this conversation that kickstarted the inspiration for this episode. So today we're going to be talking about the birth of telenovelas, followed by having an interview with Tina Silva, who did her research on telenovelas in Brazil and their impact on society. And then we're going to finish it off with telenovelas going global. So the birth of telenovelas. I think this is a really cool topic because there was so much evolution in what the telenovela was before it came to where it is now. Like first you had, or we're told we had these Cuban tobacco workers that essentially were getting bored at work, rolling tobacco leaves or doing whatever they're doing. So they decide to up their morale and productivity by getting someone to read a really long-winded book over a number of days. And supposedly these books were French novels that were social realists talking about big issues of class, 
and a lot of themes that we actually just talked about in terms of you know marriage and family and all kinds of troublesome things like that and anyway so that idea of having this story being told over a number of days over a long period of time evolved from these cuban workers into being told on radio in cuba and once tvs came along it was no longer just sound but things got put up on the screen and that became really popular people were really glued on a daily basis to see how these dramatic storylines were going to play out. Then suddenly it's 1959 and the Cuban revolution happens. Fidel Castro comes into power. And because of the, the state monopoly and information and media, all these writers are suddenly exiled from the country. And they make their way across the rest of Latin America. And they become the fodder for what then becomes these telenovela industries across the whole region. Right. And... While telenovelas are produced all around Latin America, it's really Mexico, Venezuela, and Brazil that are the real powerhouses when it comes to production. And it's cool because each one has their own vibe. So Mexican telenovelas are often more melodramatic and weepy and emotive, whilst telenovelas in Brazil tackle the social issues of the day. And Venezuelan telenovelas are somewhere in between the two. And what I like is that the whole region gets all these novellas exported and imported from different parts. And also there's this really clear case about how audiences really do change across countries. Like when when Chile bought the, the screenplay rights to this really popular show called Angel Malo from Brazil, what they did was take on the story, but actually clean away a lot of things that were a bit too controversial for the more Catholic and conservative Chilean public. So they they talked less about abortion, less about divorce, and readapted it for the tastes of the Chilean public. Right. So the distribution of telenovelas is actually rather similar to those of soap operas in America. So you have these companies like Colgate and Procter & Gamble that literally produce soap and sell soap, right? And they sponsored these shows and they knew it was a way to get their brand out there and promote themselves. And so that's why they wanted these shows to be seen by as many people as possible and have as many eyes uh, glued onto the screens. And what's different, again, is that a lot of the, the narrative isn't being played out by what you see on the screen in terms of the actions or what's going on, but rather by the dialogue and what people are talking and saying to each other. And telenovelas are just so popular that they are almost back to back on TV, right? Like at any one time, a network will be airing four novellas in one go, like back to back. But with soap operas, it's more of a one a week type schedule. And that is just because they're not as popular. And talking about this difference between movies and telenovelas in Latin America, I mean, states have been trying to subsidize these movie industries all across the region in Latin America, and they've never really hit it off. It's just been massive amounts of wasted money. But telenovelas are the very front and center of entertainment, and they can do so well without any kind of subsidy. They're their own massive market. And whilst that's the case... There's this other side of, of telenovelas that they're not really perceived as culturally valuable by, by critics or by people that are like, I don't know, up in these cultural circles. And that's been the result of several different things. It's a combination of the fact that 
melodrama where you have extremely exaggerated or turbulent storylines they're not seen as particularly literary then again if you combine that with the fact that they're mostly seen by the masses so it's popular culture not high culture and then to add to this uh to this list because it has been primarily targeted at women and because for so long these literary circles or cultural circles were dominated by men or at least dominated by the idea that women's entertainment was marginal to cultural output all of these things together gave telenovelas a reputation of being these you know things that were popular but not for any artistic value and the cool thing now is that a lot of cultural theorists and feminist scholars have been looking back and asking well actually they have been really popular they have molded people's ideas about entertainment so more than anything they're extremely worthwhile studying and i think one thing that has really contributed towards their popularity as shows is the fact that you know whilst in america you have these soap operas that have this sort of batch filming where they'll film 20 episodes in one go and then release them once a week but in in these telenovelas, they're written one day and then aired two, three days later. So they can respond to current events of the time and the country or, you know, the changing demands of their viewers. I remember you telling me that there was this one show where they had this one character that was supposed to be on the sidelines, but the viewers just liked her so much that the writers actually wrote her in as a main character from then on. And so because of that, you just have more eyes glued to the TV screens because they feel much more of a part of that show. And the cool thing was that this feeling of belonging extended not just between the family and the show, but families felt connected across the entire country. Initially, this wasn't the case. We had these networks air their shows in big cities, and it was people that could catch their frequencies on their TVs that could watch them. But suddenly with VHS tapes, they could distribute the shows across a big country like, say, Brazil. And TV stations across the country could play the exact same show at the same time. And this community of viewers extended now to the whole country. And through that, people imagined their surroundings and their sense of belonging to something much bigger than just their town or their city, but to really a whole nation. This became a really important platform for firstly for having people imagine themselves as belonging to this kind of community. Once that happened, a lot of the, the governments throughout the region started using these platforms to promote certain values that were important to different regimes. Right, and because of the fact that governments knew how important these shows were, they also knew that they had to censor what was said on them. So because of that, any writer that was opposed to a government's um, policy or just the ideology as a whole needed to be really creative in the way that they portrayed that. So it would be through subtle means like sarcasm or a satire or a quirky character that overemphasized some of the uh, government's um, views. And so it really shows how integral these telenovelas were in carving national identity and spreading certain values. So we have this big question about the place of telenovelas 
in society, in the politics of that country. And we mentioned before about how government is used as platforms. And today we have Tyna Silva, who is an undergraduate at Oxford, is coming to the end of her degree, that researched these really important questions in relation to Brazilian telenovelas and how these telenovelas were able to inject new kinds of issues into popular dialogue. And she's here to tell us a bit about her experience being Brazilian and being surrounded by these shows and about her findings that she's done over the last couple of months in her thesis. So thank you, Taina, for coming on to our show. I thought we could start things off with you telling us a little bit about what telenovelas mean to Brazilian culture and to yourself. So telenovelas are an essential part of Brazilian and Latin American culture more generally. We have the first telenovelas um, being broadcasted in the late 1950s. And by the 1970s, 60% of Brazilians keep up with at least one daily telenovela. So novelas have therefore been an integral part of the daily routines of millions of Brazilians, influencing their thoughts and allowing them to identify as part of um, a larger community. The beauty of telenovela watching is that it's truly intergenerational, it transcends class boundaries um, and even state boundaries. Brazil is such a diverse and massive country with um, very different regional customs and even regional dialects. And for the first time, we have a product that is being consumed equally and at the same time by all Brazilians, despite these intersectionalities. So telenovelas, what they did was homogenize culture and create the sense of a national community despite all of Brazil's differences. Um, it's even been argued that the reason why Portuguese is spoken throughout Brazil is because of television programs like telenovelas. So not only have they been a massive part of Brazilian history and national identity, but they've also been a massive part of my life. I used to watch them every day when I was smaller with my grandmothers and was and still am obsessed. And this is what led me to want to write my thesis on how women specifically were impacted by the discourses in telenovelas in the 1970s. So Taina, when you were doing your research about how women were impacted by these telenovelas, how did you see the portrayal of women changing throughout the decades on these shows? So that's a really interesting question. When I started writing my thesis, one of the principal ideas I wanted to investigate was whether themes presented in telenovelas merely reflected existing social and political changes or whether they actually had the power to initiate change. And what I found out happens is a little bit of both. So telenovelas need to be controversial in order to keep people hooked. But at the same time, they also need to achieve popular acceptance as they are essentially a consumer product. So what a good telenovela does is delve into a latent theme or issue in society, something which is already happening, but is still incredibly taboo. What it does is then open up debate surrounding these issues, um, opens up conversation by giving them unprecedented public platforms and visibility. So the portrayal of women throughout the course of the decade changed both because the political and social roles of women were changing in society, but also because telenovelas were encouraging debate and inviting women to reevaluate their lives and their own identities. Um, in the 1970s, this happens with sexuality and women's sexual autonomy. In the start of the decade, we have a novella like In Mons Coraging, which presents and contrasts Diana and Laura, um, one of which is the shy, innocent, pure, noble woman, and the other, the crazy, sexually emancipated woman. But by the end of the decade, we have characters like Gabriela and Malou from Malou Mulher, 
who are not only sexually liberated, but celebrated for it. Malou Moulier even um, discusses abortion and divorce issues, which were not only controversial in Brazilian society, but have never been discussed on such a public platform again in Brazil. So truly controversial and um, impactful shows, which did initiate social change. So Taina, we have these really, at that time, controversial topics being discussed on these shows and broadcasted to so many people. What were you know, women's reactions to, to these topics? So it's not surprising that all women didn't respond to changes in the same way. Just because a more progressive portrayal of women was being depicted on screen didn't mean that all of society was now automatically more progressive. Some women responded to the increased sexual liberation of female characters with awe. In interviews, they would say that they hoped to emulate characters' trajectories in their own lives, whilst others resented what they saw on screen and called for censorship from the government. And this contrast in reception really reflected political debates also. Um, While some women rejoiced with the popularization of contraceptive methods in the 1960s and 70s, others worried that it would lead to the moral degeneration of the country. But what still happens is this idea of opening up debate and conversations. Even though people may not have agreed with all telenovela content, they didn't want to miss out and they kept watching. Statistics show that viewership never decreased throughout the decade. So whilst audience members were never passive watchers, they could criticise what they saw. Telenovelas still had this power to legitimise social change and influence debate because of their immense cultural importance. You didn't want to miss out on last night's telenovela episode because that could mean missing out on conversations with neighbours and at work the next day. One thing I remember finding really fascinating when we were talking about this before the interview was about what you mentioned of, of women experiencing telenovelas differently depending on what social class they were from. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Class considerations are really important for the world of telenovelas. Um, This is because the physical act of watching was really important for the ways in which women were able to interact with shows and their themes. There's a real difference between watching a telenovela by yourself, in your room, with your private TV, and watching crowded around a single living room TV and watching the show with friends and family. What was equally important, though, was also routine. Um, Working class women worked all day and in the evenings they had a very small window after dinner to relax. Um, This meant that for working class women the most popular television slot was the 8 o'clock novella. Whilst upper class women also watched the 8 o'clock novella, they then went on to tune into the 10 o'clock novella as well. This was because they were less tired and perhaps didn't need to wake up as early in the morning the next day to go to work. These differences in audience viewership were picked up by network producers and writers who began to make the 8 o'clock novella lighter and more family-friendly and the 10 o'clock novella more polemical and controversial. So the range of issues that women engaged with in the novellas did differ according to their class. And this really links to the Brazilian feminist movement as a whole, which was generally ran and made up of women from the upper and middle classes. So how do Brazilian telenovelas today compare to those of the 60s and 70s? Do they talk about the same issues or have the topics discussed opened up? So the essential characteristics of novellas in the 1970s really remain unchanged in the modern day. 
what telenovelas continue to do is give audience members the ability to interrogate important issues through the blanket of melodrama. For example, in 2001, we had a telenovela in Brazil called Oclone, which was about human cloning. And after this novella, you had Brazilians everywhere, including those who may not have even finished secondary education, discussing the advantages and dangers of modern genetic science, which was, you know, something incredible. More recent controversies drummed up by telenovelas include their portrayal of homosexual couples. So whilst the first gay kiss was extremely controversial, um, subsequent kisses have become more accepted and studies have shown that since the first showing of a gay kiss on the Brazilian telenovela screen, the number of assaults on homosexual individuals in Brazil has drastically decreased. So telenovelas not only continue to be incredibly important to Brazilian culture, but are also influencing important social and political changes, not only to do with women, as I have looked at, but to do with society as a whole. I mean, this is such a cool and, and fascinating topic, Tina. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing your insights from your research. I mean, it, it's just so cool to see in the context of Brazil how audiences responded to these telenovelas and how a lot of that was mediated by gender and by class specifically. That's all extremely fascinating. And no doubt it was a very similar experience for countries across the region. So thank you again for, for sharing all of that with us. After the break, we'll be talking about the impact of telenovelas around the world. Now we're going to talk about the impact that telenovelas have had around the world. And we're starting with this case that actually is really unexpected. And it's about how Eastern Europe came to have this huge fandom for telenovelas and for Latin American film and TV in general. And it all starts with this Mexican film made in 1950 called Un Día de Vida. And the funny thing is that if you're looking at this film from the context of Mexico, nobody cares about it. I mean, it massively flopped when it was released in 1950 and it had no influence on any genre or film in general. So people kind of just forgot about it. But in 1952, Yugoslavia decided to buy the rights to it and broadcast it in the country. And the reason they did that was because they were caught up in this ideology battle with the Soviet Union. So at the time, in 1952, Yugoslavia was being led by Joseph Tito. And he was trying to resist Soviet influence. And according to his struggle, he didn't want to have any movies or cultural influence from Soviet directors and Soviet production companies that were, of course, trying to promote Soviet values and the Soviet cause. So he was looking for something from elsewhere to fill programming in the country. But at the same time, he didn't want to have American influence. Of course, the backdrop to all of this was the Cold War. So having American movies was also not going to be the deal. So instead, they looked to Mexico and they released this movie and people were just gripped by it. There's this quote from this critic called Alexander Vuko that says, never before had a film provoked so many tears. Like people were, were across the country, people were like infatuated with the film. It was really, really crazy. Right. And like you mentioned, right, if you look at it just from a purely geographical perspective, this Mexican movie has no business doing well in Eastern European Yugoslavia. 
But then when you look at the climate, the political climate of Yugoslavia at that time, and the resistance that they were having towards the USSR, you realize that from a contextual perspective, it makes a lot of sense because this movie also talks about resistance and revolution. And so the people of Yugoslavia probably related to this movie a lot more than they would have any big Hollywood hit. And so this movie, like you said, it just became massive. It was the most watched film in 50 years. And Mexican and Spanish culture just started coming into Yugoslavia through mariachi bands and, and the music. It was really taking over people's lives and, and, and influencing the culture of people. So this is the first real indication of Latin American film and TV coming into Eastern Europe and becoming a massive success. And it really laid the foundation for telenovelas to come into the region some decades later. Up until 1992, Russian television was dominated by the enthralling broadcasts of the Congress of the People's Deputies. Basically, there was nothing on TV to watch. And then you had the collapse of the USSR. And with that came the privatization of various companies. And the first station to be privatized was Ostankino. With this, they needed to build an audience. And to do that, they needed a diverse range of shows to broadcast to people. But at the same time, they had a lot of budget constraints. They weren't a rich station. So they had to buy cheap shows. And one of those would be a Mexican telenovela made 18 years prior called The Rich Also Cry. And yes, so you have this 249 episode series that got aired so often that Russians got through it in just four months. 200 million people were tuning in regularly and this newspaper even joked that the series was so popular that it had been more effective than any other health program in increasing life expectancy in Russia because people just refused to die before they knew how the series ended. And just one more thing even to the show being aired in Russia, the, the lead actress, Veronica Castro, got so many letters from Russian fans that she made a trip to, to Moscow in September of 1992. And it was the, the full show, man. Like there were crowds of fans as she arrived and throughout her whole stay. And she was even greeted by Boris Yeltsin at the Kremlin, no less. And who would have thought, you know, telenovelas coming all the way from Latin America and not just doing well in Russia, but really becoming a national viewing event. And so just like that, with broadcast networks buying the rights to air these telenovelas in their local markets, the impact of these shows didn't just spread across Eastern Europe, but they spread across the world, you know, even as far as the Philippines, Taiwan, and Cambodia. I mean, the impact was truly massive. But then these broadcast networks started thinking, well, now we understand the storytelling element 
of these shows, why don't we take that structure and use them to tell our own local stories? And yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you have this Colombian show, for example, called Yo Soy Betty La Fea, translated in its English version to Ugly Betty, being adapted in 25 different countries. I mean, even Mexico, that of course also speaks Spanish, like Colombia, and it's like really close, <laughs> decided to make two local versions for some reason. I mean, they didn't really need to. I'm not sure. But the cool thing about all of this is that, as you mentioned, we have these shows making their way across the world into East Asia and getting made locally through local stories. But then these local stories came back to us. I remember when I was living in Peru, there was this really, really popular show called Stairway to Heaven. That was a South Korean show. And it was as followed as telenovelas that had been made in Latin America. And I think this full circle of cultural exchange from Latin America to the rest of the world and coming back from the rest of the world to Latin America is really a very cool, cool story to reflect on. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.